Mark 12, 1 through 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Today we turn to uh, Jesus' parable in Mark chapter 12 uh, that I've entitled this morning, uh, A Vineyard, Its Tenants, and a Beloved Son. We begin by seeing Jesus speak, right? Look at verse 1, chapter 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. Last week we saw that Jesus entered into the temple, and as he's in the temple, he's doing many things, many controversial things, but really the most controversial thing that he can do is teach. And boy, does he teach. While he's there, he's confronted by members of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is a religious and political ruling body in Jerusalem. It's made up of scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, and this morning we find Jesus again teaching, likely still in the temple. Chapter 12 has three confrontations with different members of the Sanhedrin, and this morning is the first of these. It's hard to say if these events really happen back to back chronologically. Does this, does this parable teaching come immediately after last week's confrontation about authority, or is it simply Mark linking together these events with the intention that we would see a clear connection between the variety of teachings and confrontations that happen here. But here's what is true. No matter what, the issue at hand is a matter of authority, okay? The context in Mark chapter 11 and Mark chapter 12 is a question of authority. In our parable this morning, Jesus puts the question back to the leadership in Jerusalem, whose vineyard is it anyway? Whose vineyard? Who really has authority for the people of God? Heavenly Father, this morning we begin with a confession that you have authority. We thank you that we know this, that we aren't good continuing on in at least a rebellion of our minds, that our minds know the truth. You are the authority. You are the ruler of, an owner of the vineyard. Your authority is from heaven. 
You have a right to demand fruitfulness of a fig tree and a vineyard and its leaders. So this morning we open up your word and we pray, Lord, that you would speak. The Father himself has said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that we would listen well and receive with faith what you have for us from Mark, your gospel, this morning. We pray this in your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This morning, we begin with a vineyard. Jesus is speaking in a parable. And oftentimes, parables have one main point, sort of one thing that's being taught. They're, they're not necessarily allegorical. There's rather, in the story of the parable and all the characters of the parable, a main idea is being communicated. This morning's passage is a little bit different for Jesus, especially in the Gospel of Mark. Here, Jesus does kind of give us an allegory. The difference between a parable and allegory is in a parable, there's one main idea that's being communicated, but it's not like each one of the items in the characters correspond to something. In our passage this morning, each one of the characters kind of corresponds to something. And there's a reason why. I think one of the reasons why Jesus is willing to give an allegory here is it picks up on themes that run throughout the scriptures. The people already know who each one of the characters correspond to because it's, it's a well-rehearsed theme. In verse 1, it goes like this. A man planted a vineyard. Now, that's enough. Okay? The theme is set. But he continues on with this vivid imagery, right? A man planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, built a tower, leased it to tenants, and went into another country. So he does all the work of provision and preparation and then hands over the vineyard to a people to do the daily business so that he can return and bear fruit from his provisions. Now, I actually want you to turn there with me. We didn't even put it on the slides, just an indication here. I want you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5. Okay, keep your mark over there in Mark chapter 12. Isaiah chapter 5. It says this. It's a song. It's a song about a vineyard. David, if you wouldn't mind putting us to music, maybe find something for us next week, that'd be great. Um, uh, let me sing for my beloved my song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. What did he do? Well, he dug it. And he cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And then he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more is there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? He's made provision. He's done the work. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? What's the problem with wild grapes? Well, they're laying around on the ground and they're no good for the making of wine. Now, I will tell you, second sort of major stanza of Isaiah 5, what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. And it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall 
and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, and it shall not be pruned or hoed or briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And there is our allegory. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. But he looked for justice. But behold, bloodshed. For righteousness. But behold, an outcry. Doesn't find righteousness. He finds evil deeds. This is important. This is a well-known song among the people of God. Certainly it would have been immediately on the attention and the minds of those who hear Jesus. He picks up immediately the themes and the details of the song. It's almost like he began to sing it for us. All right? And then he reinterprets a couple elements of the allegories and inserts a few things that we're going to pay attention to. Clearly, he's borrowing the same imagery, and he's expanding the metaphor of a frequently used idea in Scripture. And I think just one of the things that I want to point out, what was wrong, because we're not going to necessarily come back to this, because Jesus changes the metaphor a little bit. He goes a different direction. But what's wrong with the vineyard? What's wrong with the people? Injustice and a failure of righteousness. You know what they need? They need a prayer of confession. They need to be called to repentance. Now, this is a theme that is picked up. This is a theme that's picked up by Jesus. What they need is someone to come and remind them of the one who prepared the vineyard. Someone to come and remind them of the covenant of the Lord and a call to repentance. And what did the prophets do? Did he not send prophets to call the people to a prayer of confession over and over and over and over again? So let's consider the different characters of the story. You can go back over to Mark chapter 12, but I would encourage you, maybe even write Isaiah 5 in the margin of your Bible so you can do some work between these two prophecies and parables. The vineyard is clearly the people of God. We're told that actually, right? Over in our other passage in Isaiah 5. The problem that arises is that the people failed to yield grapes for a beautiful harvest. They failed at justice and righteousness. And this is an issue between the Lord and the vineyard. The owner and the vineyard. The Lord and his people. And the judgment falls upon whom? Right? In Isaiah. The judgment falls upon the people. By the owner. This is surely a reference of regarding impending exile. We know from history that that is exactly what happened. The people went into the judgment of the exile. The whole of the people were exiled from the land and under judgment in the land of Israel. The land suffered under the exile, just as was indicated in Isaiah 5. The vineyard motif, it's well established throughout Scripture, and so the vineyard again is our parable today. A vineyard again, Jesus isn't going to mix up the metaphor. The vineyard again is the people of God, okay? But Jesus introduces another element to the metaphor. He introduces another character, the character of the tenants, right? I didn't see tenants over in Isaiah 5, but I do see them here in Jesus' parable. This is 
not an entirely unfamiliar idea, even though Isaiah 5 doesn't mention it. The prophets often would refer to shepherds who tend the flock or vine dressers in the vineyard. Okay, but that's not what Isaiah goes to. But Jesus picks up on that idea. He refers to tenants, that is, workers in the vineyard whose business it is to tend to the garden for the sake of a people who who would follow after the Lord in justice and righteousness. Unlike the image in Isaiah, the issue of the parable is not between the vineyard and the owner of the vineyard itself, is it? What's the issue? Where's the rub? rubs between the owner of the vineyard and the tenants of the vineyard. Jesus is not bringing a parable of judgment and a call to repentance to the whole of the people in today's parable. Rather, he's bringing a parable of judgment upon the leaders who were to tend the vineyard unto fruitfulness. In the end, the vineyard is not going to receive judgment, is it? Not in today's parable, But the judgment is reserved for the tenants exclusively. The vineyard won't receive judgment. Rather, the vineyard is going to receive a costly to the owner, particularly his son and his servants. The vineyard is going to receive a rescue from wicked tenants and see the garden handed over to others to tend to it well. Now, it's true that the Lord has called a people to himself in Christ. The redeemed are his people. But I do want us to encourage us this morning to remain in the moment with Jesus. Remain standing there in the temple with a, a bunch of Sadducees and Pharisees and scribes the Sanhedrin gathered before him. Jesus is speaking to leaders in Jerusalem and he is about to announce an the absolute authority of the master over both the vineyard and its leaders. You see, the leaders came and asked Jesus, where does your authority come from? And he's about to exercise the authority of heaven over the leaders standing in front of him. Let's look at the tenants. What do we know about the tenants in the parable? What we know is how they related to the other servants of the vineyard owner. We're not told a great deal about the tenants. We're not told what they did and how well they did it. We're not even told how well the vineyard is doing. We just know that the owner expects that there should be fruit by now. And he sends for it. What we're told about the vineyard, about the tenants, is the relationship to the other servants of the master. Look at verses 2 and 3 where we find out that information. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants, to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Verse 3. And he took him and beat him, sent him away empty-handed. Again, another servant. They struck him on the head, treated him shamefully, sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others. Some they beat, some they killed. The master sends for the fruit. This is his due. This is the whole purpose of the vineyard, is that they would bear fruit. That's why you plant a vineyard, not so you have pretty vines, right? The idea is that the master wants fruit from the vineyard. Same way with Jesus, just a little while ago. He goes to the fig tree, why? Because he wants fruit from the fig tree, right? It's what is his due, that the servants 
that are sent to collect what is the master's due and his expectation, what do they receive? They receive a beating, they're struck, they're thrown out, and they're killed. And this book, at this point in the parable, as the leader's standing in front of Jesus, I mean, you're watching this happen, right? Jesus actually did this. He said these words. He said this parable right in front of them. And we begin to recognize the characters of the parable. We've already identified the vineyard with the people of God, specifically Israel. And now we have the tenants, these leaders, officials, teachers, priests, whose job it is to tend to, to care for the people for the sake of the divine purposes of the Lord. That means the tenants are none other than the current Sanhedrin who have been standing in front of him challenging his authority. And we'll see in verse 12 that the Sanhedrin understood the point very, very clearly. All right? We know who the vineyard is. We're going to find out who the tenants are. Or we're going to find out who the servants were. We're going to find out now who the tenants are. And later, who the son is. But what about the servants sent by the owner of the vineyard? Are are these not the prophets? They're sent by the Lord who suffered great loss at the hands of the variety of kings and religious leaders of Israel throughout redemption history. Over and over again, they would come to a people who had forgotten and they would preach a gospel of repentance just like John the Baptist, who himself was a prophet. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 25 and 26. Again, I would encourage you to write this down in in the margin of your Bible so you understand the context of what these, these servants are that are sent from the owner. Jeremiah chapter 7. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them. Day after day. What's the business of a prophet? It's to speak the business, to speak the words of the one who sent him, to speak the words of the Lord, to do the business of the master, the owner of the vineyard. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. And then if you go and you read the stories of the prophets, if you read through the prophetic accounts, just as we'll do in the fall when we turn to the series on the minor prophets. We'll we'll see how they were mistreated by those to whom they were sent to proclaim repentance. In the previous episode in chapter 12, Jesus even referenced the most recent and the last of the great prophets who was himself rejected and mistreated and ultimately killed, right? John the Baptist. Mark chapter 11, verse 30, he asks, what, what's the j- baptism of John from heaven or from man? Is, is John the Baptist coming with this image of baptism as one who speaks as a prophet from heaven? Note that the Sanhed- if the Sanhedrin were good leaders, they would have rejoiced at the coming of John and his call to repentance. He would have said, oh, Thank you, Lord God, for not forgetting us and leaving us in our waywardness. But we need reform. We need repentance. We need to be called to the covenant that John calls us to. But what's their response to Jesus? In verse 32 of chapter 11, what shall we say? Was he from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. You see what's going on there? 
the Sanhedrin had rejected even John the Baptist, even the last and the greatest of the prophets who was sent from God. It wasn't the leaders, but the people who welcomed John. The vineyard welcomed John, and the the vineyard went out to John. The vineyard received his baptism. It was the leaders who failed to hold that he was a prophet. The stage is pretty clearly set for the parable. It would seem that the final confrontation is about to come. It seems that Jesus is going to announce what takes place in this situation. The owner is going to deal with these wicked tenants once and for all. But there's one more rather unexpected character in the parable. The unexpected character is found in verse 7, or verse 6. He, that is the owner, had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Jesus pushes this parable to its extremes. Even the storyteller knows that you're only supposed to have three acts to a story. But after the three servants, and many others, by the way, the master of the vineyard puts forth one more. He has one more to send. After all the prophets have come, and all of the prophets have gone, Jesus is painting a picture of himself. He's painting a picture of his relationship with the Father. At Jesus' baptism, by John the Baptist, by the way, in Matthew chapter 3, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. At the Mount of Transfiguration, with Peter, James, and John present, a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. I would take you to one of my favorite statements of the Father's love, outside of the gospel accounts, over to Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, I'm going to read that. It's a a relatively lengthy, pretty much single sentence in the Greek. (laughs) Right? We get two sentences in English. In Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3, it says this. Blessed be, it's a prayer, prayer of blessing, a benediction. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I want you to see already that what is being highlighted is the beautiful centrality of Jesus Christ. This is the Father's plan for redemption, is to put Jesus Christ at the center of every single sentence and phrase. Even as he chose us, how? In him, in the Christ, in Jesus, in the Son, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Think just and righteous. In love, I love the sentence. Look at the, look at the sort of parentheses around the sentence. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. You see that? according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us. How? In the beloved. Jesus is at the center of God's work in redemption. And Jesus is the parentheses. Do you see it? He's what holds the whole thing in love. 
and in the beloved. Jesus, the, the, very, the very idea of redemption is God's love of the Son to make much of his glorious grace, even as in the love of the Christ, the people, the vineyard, are finally well tended to. So the vineyard owner says, they will respect my son. Now it's one thing to send representatives to wicked servants, wicked tenants. It's another thing to send one who himself has a personal stake in the vineyard. Surely they're going to respect him. But it's also an act of self-sacrifice. It's an act of, of risk to put the air out there. And it's an act of love. Hebrews, chap, uh, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, begins with these words. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's in our passage, right? But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And there's a question for us in this parable. What will we do? Will we listen to him as the father has called us to do? of the beloved son. This is the heir. Now, it seems a bit foolish, but these tenants, drunk in their violence and greed, come up with a plan. Well, we'll just kill the son too. I mean, clearly, the owner has gone off to a far country, and he's not coming. So we can just kill the son. We've pretty much taken care of our last bit of this matter, and we get the vineyard. But that's the way of the wicked is... Psalm 36 says that transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. You heard that last little bit? His iniquity will not be found out and hated. That was the mindset of the wicked tenants. They thought they could get away with this. They won't be found out. Now, the owner's going to hear what happened. But there's going to be no consequence that comes and finds them. That is the way of our, our sin-sick foolishness. It's the foolishness of the Sanhedrin. It's the foolishness that's so often present in our own hearts. We know what's true. We know what's real. We just don't think there's going to be any consequence of it. I mean, we've been killing the prophets for years. What's one more, even if he's the son? We've been running from righteousness and justice. For years, what's another day? What's another sin? Does the Lord, the master of the vineyard, really see what's going on down here? Are we really left just to make the most of things? Take what we can get. Surely he's not going to come here himself and do anything about our scheming. It's the mindset of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was already plotting violence against Jesus. And this parable serves as a warning to them. A final prophetic statement, don't go there. Don't kill the son. Surely from our perspective, this parable is a simple description of reality, right? We know what happens. But from the perspective of Jesus actually telling this parable on that day in the temple courts, teaching them, a parable is a clear warning that leaves the leadership with zero excuse. They see the parable. What are they going to do? 
More than that, it's a powerful explanation of God's own self-sacrificial love in sending the Son. He's not only telling the leaders what's real and a warning of impending judgment if they continue on in this way, but it's also a message to the vineyard that the, the Father loves the vineyard. And he's even willing to send the Son to go and get what is due him. Righteousness and justice in the midst of the people that belong to him. It's essential that we have a right understanding of the gospel, that we know that Jesus was sent to give his life on a cross as a sacrifice for sinners. But it's also important that we see Jesus in light of this parable, that he also came to announce the purpose of the vineyard owner, that he came to announce the purpose of the Father and to call the leaders of the people to repent. This is the prophetic ministry of Jesus. In his atonement, we see the priestly ministry of Jesus. But in this moment, and in the other passages of the proclamations of woe, we see Jesus' prophetic ministry. In this parable, there is a call to repentance. You and I must not only believe in Jesus' work on the cross, but we also have to listen to the words that he spoke in. We must give attention to Jesus because he is the beloved son and final messenger from the Father before judgment. Friends, I would just encourage us to sit there for a moment. Allow Jesus to occupy the role of prophet for our hearts and souls. It's not a bad thing for someone to lovingly warn you of the danger of your error. It's the kindness of a father who would send a son to do that. So what will the owner of the vineyard do? This is the question. Is actually, it's in the voice of Jesus. As it's presented to the leadership to whom the parable is directed, Jesus turns to the leaders. He doesn't continue on with his parable. The parable's done. Said everything really that needed to be said, surely, right? The final resolution of the parable is left there to hang for a moment in the air to play in the imagination of those who hear it, and the answer is evident. Look at verse 9 with me. What will the owner of the vineyard do? I, I couldn't help this week but think about Nathan and David. Nathan shares out this whole the whole story of, of, of a parable as a, a call to repentance to King David. And David's in the moment, and he's like, yeah, 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 I gotta go take care of all that unrighteousness, right? And, and, and Nathan, instead of ending the parable, he, he, he simply asks the question. And it becomes very clear to David that he's that man. He's the one about whom the parable was told. The Sadducees have the same issue. David turns in repentance. The Sadducees, the, the Sanhedrin, harden their hearts. The question is put to them, what will he do? Well, it's obvious what he will do. And anyone else who's listening in the crowd knows what needs to happen. They're, they're crying out. They're like, oh, yeah, they're ready to fight, right? Yeah, that can't be. Come on, owner. Let's see some righteousness. Let's see some justice. And the Sanhedrin are not impressed, Right? The wicked may think that their schemes will not be found out, but the Lord sees, and the Lord won't sit idly by. And three things happen. The first is he will come. He will come. He doesn't just send another son to die. 
another servant, another son. He will come. He will bring judgment upon evildoers. The warning of judgment is clear. We pass it over so quickly so often, but don't miss it. He will come, and he will destroy. Second thing, when he comes, he's really going to do two things. He's going to come, and then he's going to destroy the wicked tenants. And then thirdly, the second thing that he does when he comes, he will give the vineyard to others. Two steps to the master's resolution of the situation. He comes and then he does two things. The first is to destroy the former tenants. And the second is to reestablish a leadership in the vineyard by giving it to others. It might be easy to quickly interpret this to mean that the vineyard was taken from the Jews and given to the Gentiles. Honestly, I'm, I'm a little concerned to, to go into this for just a moment, but as I was reading the commentators, that was sort of the assumption that we should read there. But I'm looking at it, and certainly the original recipients of the Gospel of Mark in Rome, who had experienced this, a significant shift and the regional influence of the gospel as it went out from Jerusalem into Judea, Galilee, and the ends of the earth. They're watching this major shift take place, but I'll be honest, I'm not entirely convinced that the most immediate purpose of Jesus is to announce a shift of leadership from the Jews to the Gentiles. I don't think that's Jesus' purpose. And I'll tell you one of the reasons why, because Jesus tells the truth, and that's not what happened. First, the main point of the parable is not to communicate who will get the leadership role of the vineyard. The most powerful thrust of the passage is that the master continues to be the master of the vineyard. I mean, isn't that the most powerful reality of this whole thing? The tenants aren't the masters. The master is. And he's going to come, and he's going to reestablish his dominance in the vineyard. He is the authority. The inheritance is not taken from the son, and the inheritance is not taken from the master. The point of the parable is to communicate that the current tenants, the Sanhedrin, are right now being judged. But the second, I would love to to just sort of move on so that we don't lose what the main point is. But Jesus does say that it will be given to others. The second Subsequent point is, who has given care for the kingdom of the Son? Who will tend the vineyard of God? Matthew 28. Familiar passage, verse 18. Jesus came to them and said, All authority, all the authority of the master, all the authority of the owner, in heaven and on earth, has been given To me, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Friends, the first thing is what we've already seen. The master remains in control. The son has absolute authority in heaven and on earth. And his commission is to whom? The apostles. The apostles are to tend the vineyard in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Spirit. There is a transfer of authority and leadership. 
And it is out of the, of the ritual practice in the shadow which is the temple that when the real comes, those whose business it was to tend to the shadow pass away under judgment because of their failure to tend to it well. And the real who is the Christ, the true temple, and the cornerstone of what is to be established, establishes a people. And it's twelve apostles. And to him he has given the commission, this prophetic and priestly authority to bring the truth of the gospel among a people to the ends of the earth. So ultimately it will be true that even the Gentiles will be brought in. The tending of the vineyard after the death and resurrection of the Son passes from the temple system and its leadership to the apostles, even as Jesus maintains his own authority and his presence in their midst. Note that. He didn't go off to a far country. Behold, I am with you always. It's then that all the disciples of every tribe, tongue, and nation, Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, it's all of these who are devoted to the apostles' teaching that carry the authority of the Son himself that carry on the labor of the vineyard of the Lord. And the Holy Spirit, who is with us, he is the Spirit of the Christ, continues to provide the gifts of the church. He anoints leaders for the people to lead, protect, and provide according to the word of God that remains their soul and prime authority. The understanding that the passing of authority is from the mediated authority of the temple and its leaders to the ministry and authority of the word which is given to the apostles, the shepherds, and the elders who come after them that are devoted to the apostles' teaching. See, God has continued to give leaders for the people. There is a transfer of leadership, but he has not abdicated authority. I was listening to a sermon by Thomas Terry on this passage this past week. Joel Fair pointed me to it. Some of you may know Thomas Terry as a spoken word artist on the record label Humble Beast that I highly commend to you, where he goes by the name Odd Thomas. It's not every day that I quote a man named Odd Thomas uh, or point you to him, but he's worth your listen. He points out when he's preaching on this passage that when the Lord comes, he doesn't abandon the vineyard to be untended. He removes the wicked leaders, but he also replaces them with others. There are many in the church who have been injured by wicked leadership. I have to pause on that. Because some people heard that and their, their, their soul sank. And others of you didn't even hear it. There are some in the church who have been injured, harmed by wicked leadership. Even in the immediate circumstances of Jesus in the temple. His overturning of the tables, right? The money changers. Think of the people who make the journey to Jerusalem to worship the Lord only to find themselves being extorted. When they're forced to purchase offerings, sacrifices at exorbitant exchange rates. They're looking for a place for prayer and devotion to the Lord and they see extravagance. Think of the wound that happened to the people who made that pilgrimage right here in this passage. 
Think of the fathers and the mothers who turn to their sons and their daughters and try to explain what it is to walk humbly before the Lord in the midst of that chaos. And there's a wound that goes there. It's a wound that's familiar to some here. Think of the Gentile converts who find the court of the Gentiles and they gather to pray. They left behind the gods of their nations and turned to the one true God and they find the place of prayer that's devoted for their gathering filled with noise of commerce and usury. What kind of damage happens to souls like that? Do they go home and say, man, that's as wicked as Rome. When I went to the people of God, when I went to the faith, when I went to the called out ones, The people who belong to the Lord, all I found was Rome. I'm done with those hypocrites. Would they not have left wounded, jaded by the failures and abuses of leadership? But the hearts, wickedness of this group of leaders are not unique in the history of the church. There are many even today who have gathered to the church for worship, healing, and rest only to find those who would wound them rather than apply the balm of the gospel. It's a healing balm. This is what is needed. This is the business of the prophets to announce a call to repentance to one who would send his own son that you would hear it. And they find wounding. The warning is severe. And I think that we should hear the warning. Anyone who speaks, anyone who proclaims, anyone like myself that would claim to speak with some sort of authority from the word, we should hear the warning carefully. But we should also hear the kindness of the solution of the Lord is not to do away with the leadership, but to remove the wicked and replace them with others. If you have been hurt by wicked servants, hear this. The Lord sees... He's not absent. He is not just off in some far country. He does not sit idly by. The judgment of the Lord will be severe for those who have done harm in the vineyard of the Lord. Jesus often speaks a word of woe to the hypocritical leadership, and we do well to listen to it yet today and find comfort. The Lord will tend to the vineyard in which you find yourself. He will tend And the Lord will appoint for you leaders, vine dressers, shepherds, by his own authority, not by theirs, not self-ordained people, but people who find their gifting from the Holy Spirit in an affirmation in the church that find themselves in alignment with the qualifications of the word so that they would faithfully shepherd you in the way of Christ. According to the healing balm of the gospel, I plead with you not to reject Jesus' design for the church. Honestly, I think one of the things that happens in that harm and then that, the, the, the result that so often happens, especially in our individualistic culture today, is to run off on your own and sort of self-appoint yourself as your own leader. Friends, we can be wicked leaders for ourselves as well. Don't reject God's design for the church. Continue on listening for those who lead in the way of Jesus. Listen for what sounds like the master's voice. Jesus unpacks this passage for us. And he does it by interpreting this whole parable and giving us something, honestly, that I find a little bit unexpected. At the end, he he goes and he quotes Psalm 118. In verse 10, he says this. 
Have you not read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. The Lord Jesus breaks out of the parable, and he begins to give an interpretation. Yes, the leaders would reject Jesus. More than that, just like the beloved son of the parable, they're going to kill him. They're not going to heed the warning. They're not going to turn and repent. They're going to kill him. But unlike in the parable, the beloved son does not disappear from the narrative, does he? Jesus will be vindicated. He will become the capstone. He is the real that the Sanhedrin ought to have been waiting for the whole time. And he's the only hope for the whole of the vineyard. He will become the capstone. It's interesting that Jesus is in the temple saying these words. He's being rejected right there in the temple next to the remnants of Solomon's porch that so recently lay in ruins with something else built there. But Jesus, Jesus will remain even when that great edifice that is there before him, Herod's temple, is destroyed. He will become the capstone. He will establish a temple in his own body through which the people can be reconciled to God and bear much fruit. It's right there. In the midst of this rejection that Jesus is describing, the, the moment the, the, of his own glory, of his own triumphant resurrection, Jesus has been, has been preaching a gospel in which the Son of Man would be suffering rejected, crucified, but also resurrected. Jesus will become the capstone of the faith. And we're told this is the Lord's doing. The Lord has not lost control of the vineyard. He's still sovereign. He's still working. The Father sends the Son, and even when the Son is rejected, it's according to the plan of the Lord. And it's marvelous. All who see it and humble themselves before the Master say, that's marvelous in our eyes. And we sing songs about it. And when we see Jesus rise from the dead, all who receive him by faith will declare marvelous in our eyes. That's the central teaching of Jesus in this passage. The Lord maintains authority over his vineyard. He's not abdicated authority. He's not abandoned his people. He has the design that involves the beloved son from the father. The father sends the son. The son gives his life on the cross as these wicked servants plot and they scheme, right? They sought to arrest him right there in fulfillment of the parable. The prophecy is true and they scheme right there immediately in the next sentence. The son will give his life on the cross, but the son will rise. The question is this. Do you see him? Will you, will you receive the prophecy of the Son? Will receive the preaching of the kingdom of God, his gospel? Will you humble yourself before the Son and say, there is one master. It's not these tenants. It's not these leaders. It's not the Sanhedrin or elders or anyone else who might take their place and try to rule our lives, and it's not myself. It's not myself that on my own I can live my own definition of righteousness, my own definition of justice, the definitions that we can find in our community or culture, is the Lord God. 
And where is the hope of redemption? But in that the Son would suffer in our place. Friend, we already learned from Isaiah, it's not just the leaders that ought to be judged. It's the whole of the vineyard. Before some of you say, well, I'm just not going to take a leadership role, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. It's the whole of the vineyard that ought to be judged. But the Father sends the Son to receive the justice of the whole of the vineyard. For anyone who would turn to him, the justice is fulfilled by Christ on the cross in our place. And he rises to new life. That all who place their faith in him themselves might have life and an inheritance with the Son. And the vineyard becomes ours, baby. It's ours. And we get to, to, to eat of the fruit of righteousness and justice in the kingdom of our Lord forever. Friends, this is good news. One of the things that's difficult for me in a preaching of a passage like this is there's so much to it. And I would love to speak to each one of you and each one of us individually and spend time here. And I hope you will. That's the business of community group. It's the business of our afternoons together. But I trust this morning that whatever it is in this passage, whatever good news, whatever good balm, that the Lord would do this work for you because you don't go with my words. Although I hope they've been helpful in pointing you to Christ. You go with the Spirit of God. And he will confirm his words to your heart. And he will apply a gospel bomb there. God, we trust that to you. We trust you to do a good work. Lord, I pray that you would make calls by your spirit and your word, calls to repentance this morning. Or that you would call, make calls to humility. Or that you would make a conviction to cry out for help. That you would give a confidence to the one who is wounded to cry out for the balm of Christ and to ask honest questions that are afraid to ask, well, what does it look like to participate with your church according to your spirit's ongoing authority and presence according to your anointing with gifts, some among us. And Lord, I pray that in this church we are not beyond the dangers of wicked leadership. Lord, I pray that you would be with us, that weekly and daily and moment by moment together in a one anotherness of your body we would call one another to repentance. And particularly that the elders would repent quickly. And that you would anoint even more among us, that there would be others who can come alongside of the eldership that there would be deacons who are raised up to, to be servants in the midst of this church. And you would preserve us and protect us and bring about a great fruit of righteousness and justice, salvation and peace for your glory, for all this fruit belongs to you, is from you and to you. Lord, we pray all these things in the gracious name and the powerful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.